Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Hi, I'm Penny Worsing, president of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's diverse podcast series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. I'm joined today by Dr. Christine Rapella, Opus Dean of the Opus College of Engineering at Marquette University. Over the course of her career, Dr. Rapella has been the first woman in several college leadership positions, a full professor, chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering, and now as Opus Dean. She, as she's progressed throughout her career as a female in a male-dominated field, she has developed a keen interest in female leadership and a mission to change the face of engineering in order to create a field that's more representative of the diverse world in which we live. So thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Rapella. Let's, let's get started. What initially sparked or inspired your interest in STEM and, and the engineering fields and in academia? My interest in sort of science and math, I think, started when I was very young as a child, although I will tell you, like most people, I had many different career interests growing up. I you know, remember wanting to be an airline stewardess, a ballet dancer, um, an international spy at one time, um, an artist, uh, and even an architect. You know, I love drawing, but I also had a, you know, I, I did well in, in math throughout school and in science. And it was really my father and my mother who both encouraged me in those areas to do well and to continue to do well um, in, in math and science. I also had some really excellent math and science teachers, I think, throughout K-12 who encouraged me and my interest in it and my skills in it. So it was something I really loved, particularly in the area of math. And I enjoyed doing, uh, for me, I think it was really like doing puzzles and problem solving. It's something I always loved, whether it was, you know, actually doing number, number puzzles or, you know, jigsaw puzzles or constructing, um, buildings with Legos or, um, even doing minute, you know, one minute mysteries. I sort of always liked that whole problem solving aspect. And I think that's what led to it, but it really wasn't until, I just started college that I even knew what an engineer did. I really sort of picked the major just by happenstance. I was planning on going to medical school and I needed a major and I thought about math and I thought about chemistry because I love those two areas a lot, but I really didn't see the career potential in those particular areas for me. And uh, it was my mother who came home with a brochure about biomedical engineering. And uh, I looked at it and had a lot of math and a lot of science and only a year of English and no history. And I thought, well, that's my major. Uh, so that's sort of how I fell into it, really not knowing what engineering was about, but um, really fell in love with it as wow. I went through college. Well, that's, that's quite impressive. And I think there are bits and pieces there that can really um, talk to a lot of different people. I mean, teachers who have such an impact on us at an early age and, and parents. So, um, so that's, it's very impressive. Um, Walk us through your academic and professional accomplishments. Um, where did you go to school and and how did your studies influence your career path? 
That's a great question. Um, I, as I said, going into college, my plans were um, to go into medical school. When I was a kid, I was sort of a medical school, uh, medical show junkie. I used to love things like Medical Center and Marcus Welby and Emergency and those sorts of shows and just this idea of being able to solve these complex medical problems and be able to help people. So I went in with the intention of going to medical school and uh, again, chose biomedical engineering as my major um, as a bachelor's degree. And so I did that at Marquette University. It was one of only a few schools in the country that had such a major. My junior year, I actually took my MCATs and started thinking about the medical schools I was going to apply to. But I had the opportunity to do an internship that summer as a biomedical engineer with a company called Marquette Electronics, a company founded by Michael Cudahy. Um, and uh, during that summer, I spent a lot of time in a hospital environment, both at a at a county hospital as well as a private hospital. And I spent time in intensive care and cardiac care units evaluating the Marquette Electronics patient monitors against the Hewlett-Packard monitors. Um, and so I learned a lot about the technologies, but I spent even more time talking to physicians and nurses and um, medical students who were actually using the technologies and taking care of the patients. And I really realized by the end of summer that I didn't want to do medical school anymore. I wasn't so interested in the day-to-day -day patient care. But for me, what was most exciting was working side by side with the doctors and other clinicians to develop the technologies to improve healthcare and to treat people. So it was really my senior year when I started thinking about not doing medical school anymore and thinking about, okay, what do I do next? I actually had the option to keep it, you know, to continue with Marquette Electronics when I graduated. But part of me was um, starting to thinking about an academic uh, career. My father was a professor, a professor of biology, so I knew a little bit about that academic career. Um, and I enjoyed the university environment. I enjoyed tutoring and teaching. I did some tutoring when I was in college. I also was a gymnastics coach. So I did a lot of teaching of children's ages, you know, eight to eight, you know, four to 18. And I actually liked that sort of piece of it and started thinking about maybe an academic career. So I started applying to graduate schools. I was lucky to receive an NSF graduate fellowship, which allowed me to pretty much choose anywhere I wanted to go. And so I ended up going to Northwestern University, and I did both my master's and my PhD in biomedical engineering at Northwestern University. I had an excellent mentor there named Steve Swern, who was a cardiologist who really influenced me, um, helped me network with some of the greatest researchers in the world and taught me a lot about writing and communication, how to sell my ideas, um, and really and a lot of good life lessons too about you know, balancing work and children and all that sort of thing. And so um, I, you know, at that point, I was still deciding between industry and academia, but really leaning toward a career as a professor. So uh, Marquette University had a position opened up and gave me the opportunity to come back to Marquette, something I think I always wanted to do in order to give back because Marquette was very good to me as an undergraduate. And so I've been at Marquette since 1990. I started as an assistant professor and moved myself way up the professor ranks. Um, I was a department chair for nine years of the biomedical engineering department. And then I became executive associate dean and eventually um, dean of the College of Engineering now at Marquette University. It's a job I swore I would never do, uh, being a dean, but here I am doing it. Isn't that the way it usually works? Um, <laughs> but it's actually been a joy. I have a great college, and I still am doing some teaching. Teaching is still the best part of my job, and so I still try to be in the classroom with the wow, students when I can. That's that's quite a trajectory there. Um, the um, well. So what sort of impact have you had on the engineering programs or, or admissions since joining the Marquette University in 1990? 
I've had the joy of being involved in the um, startup of a number of different programs, as well as playing a role in admissions. I think, first of all, just being um, a female in the College of Engineering helps us in thinking about and recruiting students from non-traditional backgrounds. Um, I was the first woman in our college to hold the title of full professor, the first woman to be a department chair, and of course, first woman to be a dean of the college as well. And I think being able to hopefully be somewhat of a role model for faculty and students coming through the engineering profession is, is help, certainly helpful. Um, I've been able to be part of the creation and leadership of a number of innovative educational programs. Um, I was part of the leadership, initial leadership of the Joint Functional Imaging PhD program with the Medical College of Wisconsin. Uh, I was part of the formation of a joint department of biomedical engineering with the Medical College of Wisconsin and Marquette University. Um, I started a new biocomputer engineering major at Marquette. And most recently, I've been part, I um, was part of the creation or led the creation of a program we call Engineers in the Lead or E-Lead, which is a three-year undergraduate curriculum for our engineers uh, to intentionally develop their leadership skills, particularly their um, uh, servant leadership skills, in addition to the technical uh, education that they're getting as, as engineers. Um, this past fall, we welcomed our largest class of females with over 100 female freshmen or 30% of the incoming class, which exceeds national sort of averages and um, um, a number of other things as well. I've just been, it's been a joy to be part of um, a number of different academic programs. Well, congratulations on the, uh, the incoming class of female um, students. That is impressive. Yes, something we're working very hard to do. So we know that diversity is crucial for the engineering industry. Um, and it sounds like you you are definitely making progress, but what? A, how are you working to change the face of engineering? That's a great question. I, I think we need to change the face of engineering a number of ways. We need to change the face of people who are coming into the engineering workforce and participating in the workforce. We need to change the face of our graduates who are going out as engineers in terms of who they're going to be in the world and how they're going to contribute to society. And we're also working to change the face of our college and the way um, the world looks at us as a college. So I think it's very important because uh, if engineers are truly going to be innovative, uh, then we need to represent people from all walks of life. And then we talk about serving the world. And if we're going to serve the world, we need to look more like the world we serve. So as you know, innovation happens when you bring together people with very diverse experiences, backgrounds, knowledge, uh, lenses on the world. That's when innovation happens, when all these different sort of diverse experiences clash and come together. And so we are trying to do a lot of that in engineering through a number of ways. Um, you know, sort of a, a mentality we have here in our college is that is that every person is a gift with different talents, capabilities, experiences that should be embraced. And this um, inclusion of these diverse groups of people is what allows us to truly innovate and impact our world. And of course, it's going to be me uh, messy at times. Innovation is very messy, but that's part of the challenge. It's part of the problem solving that we enjoy doing as engineers. So one of the things we're doing in our college, first of all, is developing really a culture of leadership. Um, leadership is very important in the Jesuit tradition here at Marquette University and this idea that everybody's a leader. So we have programming that really encourages leadership development in all of our staff and our faculty and our students, and particularly to be servant leaders and thinking about how they can really be men and women for others. We are also working to develop a more innovative mindset in all of our faculty, staff, and students. And that includes everything from the books we read to some of the workshops that we do as a whole college and thinking about how we can be more innovative, which means that we have to be open and inclusive of diverse experiences, um, knowledge, uh, backgrounds, and that sort of thing. 
we are doing quite a bit at the K-12 level. We have a lot of high schools part uh, in our in our urban area here who want to be partners in K-12 education. And so a number of our student organizations, student chapters of things like SWE, uh, NSBE, um, our student council, they are going out into the local schools here and doing STEM programming with the students there, giving an opportunity to see what engineering and STEM is about in ways maybe they don't have in their own local schools. We have a very, we have a very successful implementation of Girls Who Code, which you know is a, a national program, and we have probably 80 students per semester that we are able to bring on board on our campus for eight to 10 week period. Our undergraduate grad students actually teach those courses to these girls, and um, it's been been wildly successful. And we're we continue to expand and grow in that um, initiative. We're also working hard to offer scholarships, raise scholarship money, and offer scholarships to students who are first-generation students and maybe um, the first in their families to really pursue college. And they often come from underrepresented groups in the engineering profession. And so, how do we create the scholarship money so we can provide the tuition and housing to allow them to be part of our campus community? We also offer our students a lot of hands-on experiences in innovation, whether it's in their courses and labs or whether it's in their co-op and internship programs, you know, again, giving that opportunity to be really innovative in a number of actual applied situations where they're addressing real-world problems, or perhaps they're doing participating in Engineers Without Borders, where um, they're going to countries which um, are less developed than ours, and they're installing clean water systems or putting electricity in villages and things that the people in those um, areas would like to have to enhance their living communities. So our students get a more global um, view of, of the kinds of problems that need solving. Um, another part of our ability to change the face of engineering is collaborating with other colleges and institutions and industries. So we're working on a college of business to develop programming for engineers. We call it Bridge to Business, which gives engineers a much more uh, or a greater opportunity to learn about business practices and business knowledge and really that um, business acumen that they need to be successful in the world. We do some joint programming with the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, where we're bringing together our industrial designers with our engineers to appreciate each other's worlds and develop some of the cross-disciplinary skills that industry is requesting. And we've been working with the Medical College of Wisconsin. Again, we have a joint department now of biomedical engineering with them, so we can bring together clinicians, patients, clinical environments with our engineering students and faculty. And finally, we're sort of reaching out um, on the other end. So we have K-12 on one end of the spectrum. We're reaching the other end of the spectrum, which men and women, particularly women who've taken time out of the engineering workforce to raise a family or have other family matters, and they want to get back into the engineering workforce. And there's not a very good be uh, way to do that right now. Uh, many of them don't even know where to start. They don't have the networks, don't know how to make it happen. And so I think our... Uh, you know, a lot of companies, the engineering profession, we're missing out on a, a lot of very capable people who've been educated maybe in engineering and just want an opportunity to come back and contribute once again and to uh, the technical workforce. And so we're thinking about how do we develop programming to assist um, women and wow, men in doing that. That is quite an impressive list and, and in so, just so many ways of truly changing the face of engineering from from ages, all ages, all backgrounds. Um, Wow, that is very, um, you have your hands full. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yes, we have no shortage of things to work on, but but it's, you know, it's true, but but it's fun and it's, it allows us to be innovative ourselves and creative and to um, just think a little bit differently about 
what is engineering and how does it serve the world? And, you know, we don't need the obedient engineer of the past anymore. Most of the obedient stuff is being done by artificial intelligence and computers. And so engineers, are, I think, are going to be doing different kinds of jobs when they get out there. And we need to prepare them to be, you know, much more global and um, risk-taking and entrepreneurial and um, maybe doing more of those roles that traditionally fell in other disciplines. Our engineers can do a lot of that and they do a really yeah. good job at yeah. it. Very exciting. So do you have any thoughts on how others in the industry can help to create a more diverse, inclusive environment within their companies and teams? Yeah, that's a, you know, a great question. And um, I'm not saying it's simple in any way. I think every academic institution, every industry is is grappling with this and how to do a better job. Um, first, I think it starts with leadership. You have to have leaders who believe that this is an important problem and or important issue, and are willing to you know lead and to follow through on whether it's activities, um, education, uh, just the way they the culture they build in their companies to foster a more inclusive environment, right? And so, leadership is really about leading people through change. And leadership, I mean, I truly believe leadership is about loving others. That's just part of what we as a Jesuit institution like to um, put forth as well as it's really about caring enough about other people and wanting to succeed. So I think about more servant leadership where, you know, my role is really to help all the people around me be as successful as they can be. And so that's a cultural thing, right? And so I think companies look at, need to look at their own culture. They need to get real honest and open feedback from their employees, their other constituents about their culture, how they're behaving, how people um, can thrive or don't thrive and why, and really uncover implicit biases, right? Those biases we don't even know we have because we've always done things in a certain way or have always, our companies always behave in this way. How do you take a critical look at that and think about, mm, maybe we need change because our current culture doesn't serve this group of people or that group of people. And so we're doing a lot of that with our, I think our own culture, but then we are also, we do a lot of partnership with industry. I'm very proud of our industry relations. We um, partner with about 160 companies in 19 states just in our co-op and internship programs. And so it gives us an opportunity, a lot of opportunity to dialogue with them and their representatives are on our advisory boards to talk about how do we help each other with this and how do we do more with each other? Um, those same companies are offering um, employment opportunities to our co-op and intern st students. And sometimes those students don't see themselves in those companies and maybe they become disenfranchised and um, it can actually sort of turn them off engineering if they feel like they aren't part of that community or don't see themselves um, succeeding. So how can companies change that and give them a different experience? Um, and so, you know, again, it's, it's sometimes it's a hard look at your leadership and your culture. And I really believe it starts yeah. there. And, and like you said you know, people don't, if people don't see themselves working in that company, and it may not even be, um, you know, HR policies or anything that affect them personally, but it's just the environment, you know, they want to work for a company that they can identify with. So. And um, yep. And many of them want to know that they're going to have leadership opportunities, those companies. And so that's one of the reasons we start our leadership program is we, we know, I think a lot of women and, and um, students from underrepresented groups, they want to see that opportunity to actually be in leadership positions at some point. And so we're giving an opportunity to have a glimpse of that, to prepare for that, even as undergraduates. And, you know, um, engineers often within five to 10 years of getting out into the company are often moved into management leadership positions. And I hear the stories over and over from my friends who are in industry about how poorly sometimes those engineers perform because they simply weren't prepared for it. They're prepared for all the technical aspects and they're really good at that, but no one gave them any sort of preparation and development for managing or managing and leading people, right? And that's a different set of skills. In fact, 
know, people talk about them as soft skills. I hate that word. It's not soft skills. I actually think they're very essential skills. Your ability to work on teams, be able to lead people, your ability to persuade and, and, and sell your ideas and your ability to, um, um, motivate people, emotional intelligence. Those are all things that I call essential skills that if you really want to succeed in any discipline, any avenue, those are the skills you really have to have above and beyond your technical skills. And so how do we give people the opportunity to intentionally work on those things and to recognize them and to um, become much better uh, with those sort of skills than maybe what we've done in the past? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, um, so we've talked about, you know, the university and, and um, the corporate environment. Uh, personally, for you, what, what kind of obstacles have you faced as a woman in engineering and how did you overcome them? Um, good question. I First of all, I'm going to say I feel very fortunate in the sense that um, I feel like I've always had very supportive, first of all, parents um, and then teachers and mentors who really not only encouraged me, but often were sponsors for me, bringing up my name, giving me opportunities, opening doors uh, for me. So I really feel like I've been very fortunate in everything from the classmates that I've had at school to the um, people, uh, the leaders that I've worked for in companies and in the academic environment who've given me great opportunities to um, excel and exceed and to use my gifts um, to the greatest extent. So I feel very lucky, but there have been things that have come up along the way. Um, you know, I looked at like the movie hidden figures that came out a few years ago and I shed a few tears during that movie because I think about some of the same things that I and many of my colleagues experienced in our lifetimes that weren't too different from what was in that movie. Um, you know, I, you know, I was in classrooms, big classrooms and, you know, science and engineering classes that were uh, many times I was the only female in the room or one of only two. And actually my classmates, it wasn't, you know, that was good. I actually enjoyed my classmates. I didn't have any problem with the male classmates. I grew up in neighborhoods full of boys. So I think that was something I was just used to and, and I enjoyed working with them and, and learning sports with them and that sort of thing. So I don't think that was necessarily an obstacle, but sometimes I think there were actually professors. I know, we, I know there were professors who actually looked at us women and thought, why are you doing this? You're just going to stay home and have kids. And this is a waste of your education. We've had professors who actually said things like that to us. So, you know, getting around those sorts of um, conversations is interesting. Um, when I, I remember being a student, in fact, remember where I was in the engineering building, there was only one woman's bathroom stall. So yeah, you had to walk down a long hallway and four, down four stairs in order to get to a, a female um, bathroom <laughs> stall. So I think we've all big experience what that's like. Um, when I was a first and assistant professor, I, um, I remember I was pregnant with my first child and I felt like I really had to hide it for as long as I could. I was terrified to say anything to uh, the men in my department. I was in a department with, you know, only five or six men. They were all much older. Um, I think they all had women uh, wives who stayed home. And so it was, it was, this was a new kind of um, experience in our department. And I remember finally going to my department chair and telling that I was pregnant. And the first thing out of his mouth was, oh, I guess you're on the mommy track. And that was like, what does that mean? You know, you, you never said to the men, you, oh, I guess you're on the daddy track or, um, you know, it was for the men, it was more of an attaboy. That's great. You know, so that was, you know, again, thinking, okay, wow, this is what this person thinks. You know, what are my chances of succeeding here? Um, and honestly, I had quite a few women who were in the graduate program with me who received their PhDs around the same time I did. And almost all of them within a year or two of starting out in academia or, or other job had dropped out, um, really finding it hard to try and um, mix family with, with uh, work. So that those were hard sort of things on our own uh, challenges to our own sense of confidence. Um, 
I can also tell you that for my nine years as a department chair, I was paid significantly less than my three male counterparts in the other departments, despite the fact that by all measures, I think in performance, I met or exceeded all of them. So, and I didn't find out about this till it had been sort of at the end of nine years that this was even going on. So, you know, those, those things still happen today. And I think like many women in our profession, there were times when I experienced inappropriate sexual advances from very prominent researchers in my field, whether I was at a conference or something. And those kinds of things, you know, are also, um, you know, shake your, your confidence and um, also your mindset of, am I not even respected for the work that I'm doing? And this is, these men only think that only see me in one way. And so some sorts of things can be really discouraging. But despite all of that, um, I've always been a person who's risen to challenges. I like um, I'll take on challenges. I like making change. I like making the world a better place. And if I can do something to make uh, the profession that much better for the next generation, great. Um, I'll, you know, it's all about learning how to navigate it and how to make it better for the next generation. Well, thank generation. you for, for being in that role. Um, it is, you know, when you're going through it, you don't really even necessarily know that... Um, what you know you're kind of like a, right. a fish doesn't know it's in water right you just know that that's that's yeah. how things are until you get into a different situation and you look back right. and you think wait right. a minute <laughs> what? Right. it wasn't okay right. right and so how do we right change the environment <laughs> so that the next you know the next uh generation coming along doesn't have to experience those things. They know it's not okay and that that's not the way business should be done. And, um, and you know, we're all working to do that. And men are helping out too. I mean, right, we team with our male colleagues as well. We all have to make this change so that I don't even like to talk about getting through the glass ceiling because I truly believe let's tear down the whole building and start over and create a building that's much more inclusive to all kinds of women and men, right? Right. We really do need to start. <laughs> I rebuild love the whole that. Thing. Okay, well, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. I know that you've done some work on artificial intelligence and ethical decision making. Tell us a bit more about why you were drawn to those topics. Yeah, um, I yeah, I'm fascinated with artificial intelligence because I think there, I know there are great things that can come from it, but then like any other technology, there are also really bad things that can come about as well, depending on how it's sort of handled. So I got started in my early days of research when I was a graduate student. I was working on um, patient monitors and for. uh, intensive care units, but a lot of it was about monitoring heart activity and abnormal heart rhythms. And I was also, and so I was one of those people developing the algorithms that would go into these monitors. And later on, I was working on things like implantable defibrillators and pacemakers, and how do you really develop develop the algorithms for the brains in these devices, and so that they could automatically monitor the heart and determine whether or not the heart was um, beating normally or not. And then if it wasn't, how do you let the device know it needs to administer some sort of therapy. So, you know, implantable devices have to think for themselves. And so how do you make those really smart devices so that these people can go on about their normal lives and have devices and sort of have some level of confidence that if I have a um, a severe um, abnormal heart rhythm, the device is going to, you know, save me and do something to help me out without, in case there are no emergency personnel around. So that kind of stuff is great when we can develop, I think, technologies that actually assist either assist healthcare workers in doing automated diagnosis, uh, sort of help out with sort of the smarts of looking at signals from the body and determining whether or not things are functioning normally or not, being able to help the experts with that to actually doing some monitoring and doing diagnosis in the absence of um, experts. And 
So that's what got me interested in a lot of the AI type stuff. And now, of course, we're seeing it at everything, right? We're seeing AI in our automobiles and in our um, internet of things and in medical devices and really the ability to, because of sensor technology and much more sophisticated computer hardware and software, we now are connecting this world where a lot of machines and devices can talk to each other and do things automatically with not necessarily needing human invention. So intervention, and that's a good thing. I think there's a lot of great things that come out of that. But like anything else, it can be abused and misused. And the question is, who's going to develop these artificial intelligence systems? Who's going to control them? Who's going to lead them and master them, right? And that's where I hope our engineers, um, particularly our Marquette engineers, will be in the development of those systems with a very ethical mindset and always questioning how these systems behave and who makes the decisions. And I do think that engineers will be making ethical decisions at every step of the design of, of these artificial intelligence systems and the way they're going to behave and the way that they will interact with the world. And they need to be. And we want engineers who can say, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And I think more and more of that is coming up in this world. Um, it's great, but it can be a little scary at times, too. Yeah, I think we've all seen the um, the science fiction movies where, you know, artificial intelligence uh, ended up doing something really bad. <laughs> so we, yes. we yes. have... Very bad. <laughs> okay. Um, so you're also clearly passionate about leadership development. Um, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about uh, your background in that and, and what you're doing, but why is that so important to you? I guess I've I guess I've either experienced myself or observed other organizations where I think bad leadership is just a disaster, <laughs> um, especially in the way, yeah, especially not in only in, in terms of the survival of a company or how well a company does in terms of its products and, its, you know, its investments and that kind of stuff, but really the impact it has on people and bad leadership hurts lots of people, not, you know, in, in many ways and personally and professionally. And it's a shame because I think if people just have an opportunity to do a little bit of leadership development and sort of develop those essential skills, learn a little bit more about emotional intelligence and how to appreciate the diversity in people around them and how to uh, know your strengths, but also accept your limitations and then surround yourself with a team of people who, who can help fill in your gaps. That when you, when you have that situation that's working, it works really well and it's really powerful. And that team can accomplish way more than any one of us can do as individuals. And too often, we don't see that. We see the leader who's maybe, or someone who's put into a leadership position and they're insecure about it, they're uncomfortable about it. And so they develop sort of this imposter syndrome and then they feel threatened by anybody who comes along with other ideas or wants to do things differently. And sometimes they even hire people who are much less qualified themselves just to make think they think they're making themselves look good. And I've watched this happen too often in organizations um, and the disasters it creates. And so, and engineers are those people who often within five to 10 years are moving into those leadership positions and we want them to do well and we want them to succeed. But now they're not doing calculus and physics and design anymore. They're actually leading people. And that's a that involves a whole lot of skills and knowledge and attributes that are maybe different than what they focused on in their engineering education. And so we are, we've been sort of tackling that head on, not leading leadership to chance, but really developing intentional programs. And why do people have to wait till they've been out 10 years or started an MBA program 
we can do it for our undergraduate students. So that's why we started eLead, which is a three-year undergraduate program that are for our engineering students. They apply to the program. We select a cohort of about 20 students each year, and it is a three-year curriculum of some intentional coursework, some experiential um, activities, and actually a capstone leadership course that they do above and beyond their regular engineering curriculum. Um, and we're finding it to be very successful um, when they get out. We've been tracking them as they graduate, and their companies see them as being very well prepared in a way that sets them apart from other engineers. Um, and they know they're not going to be leaders right away. They know that leadership is a lifelong journey and something they'll always be working on. But at least we've given them the vocabulary and some of the things to think about and, and know about themselves before they get out there. We've also been inviting some of our junior, more junior faculty members to be part of that program. So we have cohorts, a cohort of several faculty every year who participates in the first couple of courses along with our students. And those faculty members are also finding it very helpful in the way that they run their research labs and the way they interact with their colleagues in the college and the way that they're thinking about their own leadership in the college. Um, so we're doing it throughout the college and, and um, we recently received a $1 million gift to expand the program. So we're going to be actually increasing the size of it and opening it to students from across other disciplines. We know that our engineering students are very excited to work with students from other colleges across the campus and that this leadership is really about a team sport and a diverse community. So we're excited about the, the future of where we're running with our program and what we're able to do. Um, and as I said before, leadership development is really taking place throughout our college. Um, I say to our staff and our faculty that Everybody in this college is a leader and nobody gets to sit back and wait for other people to make things happen, that we all are part of it and we all have to work as a team. And it's not about your title and it's not about what office you have, but everybody has great unique gifts and talents and strengths that they bring to the table. And we need every one of them to be part of our leadership well, team. You're, you're clearly passionate about leadership and um, you explain very clearly why why that's important. Um, so I appreciate that. I, I, I just, just yesterday was having a conversation with a woman that I'm mentoring and, um, she's working for uh, a leader who is not effective yes. and is, is now, you know, looking for another job and, oh. um, it's, she's already checked out because it's just so it's too frustrating. And, and so it is, um, it really does impact um, so many aspects. So I can't wait for, oh, go ahead. Yes, my, oh, I was going to say my, I know my husband's an engineer and he works out in industry and he's been in a number of different companies and he comes home with his stories too about the managers and the leaders he's had to work with. And it's just aggravating to hear the kinds of things that go on and the cultures that he's had to work in. And it's a shame because the technology that he's working on the company itself is great, right? He likes that piece of it and it's good, but the people he's got to interact with, it's really frustrating. Well, thank you for that. Um, so you have been, um, you know, you've been working as a, as a woman in a male dominated field for, you know, basically your entire life. And it can be difficult as a working woman, especially one in a leadership role such as yours, um, to find that healthy work-life balance what do you do to unwind and disconnect from your professional responsibilities when you want to when you want to relax? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Something <laughs> I think we all struggle with, right? And what does it really mean? And I hear people say it's no longer about balance, it's about life work integration, which is probably what it really is, right? And I mean, I love my work. I love my job. It's it's rewarding. It's intellectually challenging. I get lots of opportunities to new do cool, creative stuff. So we like it, but as you know, it's on our mind often a lot, right? And it's always on our mind. And there's times we just need to 
be away from it and escape it so that we can give our mind an opportunity to look at other things and then see other things in the world because that's how we help develop our innovative mindset. So um, things that I love to do, uh, you know, I like to exercise in a number of different ways, um, whether it's biking, just going to the gym and running and, um, or hiking. I love having, I love music. So put my headset on and kind of get lost in all kinds of music is a great thing for me. And um, I love the fine arts. So anytime I can, you know, go and appreciate those sort of um, productions and, and just be an observer and watch that sort of stuff is very gratifying to me. Um, most recently, I've really gotten into ballroom dancing. So oh my. Uh, it started, a, yeah, it started a few years ago as a, I participated in a fundraising opportunity for um, Crystal Ray High School here in Milwaukee. And they did sort of a dancing with the Stars fundraiser. So they asked me to be one of about eight Milwaukee leaders to participate in this. And it was a great time and I got hooked. And so I've been doing that and I really enjoy because a couple times a week when I take lessons, I, when I'm in those lessons, I am so focused mentally and physically on that dancing that I don't have time to think about work and other things. So it's been a great stress reliever. Um, I also enjoy reading books of all kinds. Um, like I said, I'm kind of a, I'm a leadership junkie, so I've got books all over my nightstand in my office, but I like to read nonfiction stuff too and fiction stuff and um, just kind of get lost in those worlds as well. And I find it very enriching as well as learning about other things going on in the world besides engineering. And of course, I have a wonderful family and friends I like to spend time with, even if it's just, we're all foodies in my family. So going to a good restaurant and just enjoying new food is a, is a, is a fun thing for all of okay. us to do. Okay. Well, we're, we're about to close here, but I want to ask you one final question. If you could give um, any one piece of advice to current engineers who would like to move up in the leadership ranks, what would it be? And I know this is a tough question, but what, what are your thoughts? Um, my one piece of advice is living with integrity, living with integrity in your personal relationships and in your relationships with others, um, in terms of integrity with yourself, um, being true to yourself and who you are, um, knowing your strengths, accepting your limitations, and then surrounding yourself with others who um, complement you bring, fill in your gaps, um, and then empower those people to be successful themselves. That's how you make a great team. And, and part of that integrity is really about being authentic and being vulnerable and being transparent. I think when you model that as a leader, the people around you will do the same and you have much more authentic relationships and you will behave better as a team. So live with integrity, be authentic would be my advice. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, it wasn't such a tough question for you after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Dr. Rapella, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today and providing some really valuable insight for our current and future um, engineers and leaders. Of course, Penny. It was my pleasure. It was really a joy to speak with you today. And thank you for having me on the show. Um, I enjoyed our conversation and I wish you very well as you move forward in your important work as a woman engineer. Well, thank you. So, um, I'm Penny Worsing for all of us at SWE. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes or like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud. If you have not already made plans to be part of the largest gathering of women engineers in the world, visit our WE18 conference site, we18.swe.org. Information on housing, registration, and keynote speakers is now available. 